from Isaiah chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it's written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom. Both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, don't destroy it for there's a blessing in it. So, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possession of my, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my ser- servants shall dwell there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading, we're going to continue reading through Philippians. Philippians 1, 12-18. I want you to know, brothers, Paul says, that what's happened to me really has served to advance the Gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the Word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the Gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 8th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time He had worn no clothes, and He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When He saw Jesus, He cried out and fell down before Him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with Me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What's your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind 
and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So Philippians 1, back there. Just uh, give me five seconds to kind of reset where we were at last week. So uh, Paul is in prison in Rome. Uh, He uh, has planted a church in Philippi. He's been there uh, two or three, maybe four times in the past ten years before this. His friends at Philippi send a guy named Epaphroditus to Rome to check up on Paul, find out how he's doing, and to bring him a gift. Paul, if he's going to have food to eat in prison or clothes to wear, is going to need some money. It's not provided by for him by the Roman government. And so Epaphroditus brings this gift. Paul sends a letter back to the church at Philippi with Epaphroditus, basically to say thank you for the gift and to say a few other things too. And that's where we're at here uh, in chapter 1. Paul says, I think my God... Uh, I think my God, uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. Let me jump down to verse 12. I was at verse 3. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, let's talk about what it is that's happened to Paul that's led him to the imperial guard. Uh, The imperial guard, this is uh, the main reason why we know that Paul's in prison in Rome uh, when he writes Philippi. He, Paul, Paul's in prison in a lot of places. Uh, but we know that he's in Rome this time because uh, the Imperial Guard, that's where they were stationed. That was Caesar's special troops. If you were going to be in the Imperial Guard, that was kind of a, a... You had to have a lot of tenure. You had to have been in the service for a long time. You had to have proved yourself worthy. The Imperial Guard got twice the amount of pay that uh, other soldiers in the army got. And it was pretty cushy duty being stationed in Rome in the city and not on the field. So uh, Paul's in Rome, and he says, I want you to know, uh, brothers in Philippi, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, so this is what has happened to Paul to get him to Rome. Paul, about three years prior to this, goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover with a bunch of other fellow Jews. When he gets to Jerusalem, he's preaching the gospel, and a bunch of people there get angry with him and accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple precincts. Paul adamantly denies that he ever brought Gentiles into the temple where they're not supposed to be. However, he gets himself a good beating uh, before he is rescued by a small contingent of Roman soldiers stationed in Jerusalem who find out that there's this guy that's getting beaten up. They pull him out and they stick him in prison and they decide they're going to find out what this ruckus is about. But they can't get any straight answers out of the people who are accusing him of this. And so they decide, uh, we're going to beat Paul to get the answers out of him. And Paul says, you actually can't beat me because I'm a Roman citizen. And so uh, they say, okay, well, uh, what we're going to have to do since you're a Roman citizen is ship you out to Caesarea down by the coast. You can't stay in Jerusalem. You're going to get sent down to Caesarea out by the coast where the Roman governor Felix is stationed 
and he will try you there. So Paul gets sent down there, and he's in prison in Caesarea. And you would think that this would be kind of a short matter. You know, you meet with Felix, and Felix says, you either did or you didn't do it, and you go about your business. But for two years, Felix refuses to hear his case. Now, Felix talks to him a bunch of times, but he refuses to hear his case. Luke tells us in Acts it's because Felix is hoping hoping that Paul can raise some money to bribe him. And uh, Felix, like any sort of good government official, Roman government official, uh, wants a little uh, money under the table. Uh, Paul, of course, isn't going to do that. He doesn't have a lot of money, and especially not to pay uh, uh, corrupt government officials. And so at the end of two years, when Felix's term, term is up, a new governor comes in named Festus, and Felix says to Festus, I've got this guy here. He's been around for two years. You can do what you want. Festus decides, well, let's get this taken care of. So within the first couple of weeks, Festus says, what are you actually in jail for? It's been two years. And Paul says, well, I was falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the Jewish temple. Festus says, okay, I'm going to call the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council up in Jerusalem, and have them send some witnesses down, and we'll get this settled. And the witnesses come down and say, uh, basically, this is a Jewish matter. This has nothing to do with you, Festus. Festus says, okay, well, uh, let's, Paul, why don't we send you back to Jerusalem and be tried in front of the council again? Paul knows that there are people who are waiting in Jerusalem to assassinate him. And so Paul does uh, the move that a Roman citizen is allowed to pull and say, nope, I don't want to be tried provincially. I'm appealing to Caesar. I want you to send me to Rome, and I want to stand trial in front of Caesar, uh, which is what happens. Uh, Festus sticks him on a ship uh, and sends him off to uh, Rome. A bunch of stuff happens in between there. He gets into a shipwreck at one point. Uh, but he finally gets to Rome, uh, where he's put uh, under house guard. Again, he's in Rome for two years. Uh, we don't know exactly why it took so long in Rome, but um, it's possible that just Caesar had a backlog of cases to hear. Paul has to rent a house for himself. He's under house arrest. And one of the imperial guard is going to be chained to him night and day. And Paul says, all these things that have happened here, in verse 12, he says, all these things that have happened, me being falsely accused by my countrymen, me being beaten up by my countrymen, me being falsely held in prison for two years in Caesarea for a crime I didn't commit, me being shipwrecked, me being chained to this imperial guard, all this has happened in order to advance the gospel. It's verse 12. Paul's definitely in a place, is he not? I mean, so, so if it's you and I, you or I, and this is way more than probably a lot of us have gone through. Paul's definitely, definitely in a place where he could say to the Philippians, listen, I've had a pretty bad go of it. This has been a pretty rough five years since I last saw you. And he doesn't say that at all. In fact, if the Philippians are interested in finding out if Paul is hungry or if he's sick or healthy or if he's lonely or if he's having a good time, he doesn't give them any indication of that here. They're going to have to ask Epaphroditus. So what do you think? You saw him. Paul does not see himself at all in here. All Paul can see is the advancement of the gospel that's happening because of all of these things. Now, so look first at what Paul doesn't say. But what Paul could have said, but he doesn't say. He doesn't question whether God cares for him or not. He, he, he doesn't say, like, God, where are you in this? Have you abandoned me? That, that wouldn't be an inappropriate thing to say, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that Job says, but Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't question whether God loves him or not. 
He doesn't question whether this represents a dismissal from service. I've been a, I've been a preacher and an evangelist and a church planner for over a decade now, Paul could say. And now I've been stashed away here in prison. I thought that I had years of good ministry in front of me, but now it's all over. Now it's done. I guess God's got a different, somebody else different than he's going to. Paul doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't see this as some sort of demotion. Paul doesn't see this as an act of Satan. Paul doesn't say, well, I guess the devil, I guess he had his way this time. I'm here in prison. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even blame the sins of those who are opposed to him. Whether it's his own countrymen who attacked him and falsely accused him in Jerusalem, or, and can I do just a little sidebar? This doesn't really totally fit completely into the sermon. Let me do a little sidebar here. He doesn't even blame his fellow Christians, his fellow believers in Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul says that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love for me, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Some people are preaching the same gospel I'm preaching, and we're doing it as teammates. And they're on my side, and they know the fact that I'm in prison represents an act of God's sovereignty. But others preach Christ out of rivalry, out of competition, because they've always wanted to have one up on me. And now that I'm in jail, they've got one up on me. They don't do this sincerely, but they think to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. I don't care. I don't care why you're preaching the gospel. I don't care that if you're like on our team, I don't care that if you think that you're somehow hurting us by preaching the gospel. If you're preaching Christ, I'm glad about that. Now, first of all, this is not some just sort of casual, you know, I don't care what you're doing out there. Paul very clearly, in all different parts of his writings, is totally willing to bust the people who are not preaching the gospel. Whether it's Judaizers or the people preaching salvation by works, Paul is clearly willing to say, do not listen to their preaching. Let them, let their preaching uh, be damned. Don't follow the false gospel. But here in this case, he's talking about people who are opposed to him personally, but are faithfully preaching Christ, however that works. And this is, here, here's the sidebar part, right? right is that, I mean, there are people who are in competition with us. Maybe it's the Methodist church across the street or the Catholic church across the street. Uh, look, if they want to think of this as a competition, we should be willing to say, you're more than welcome to think of it as a competition. However, if you're preaching Christ, we're happy with what you're doing. You are on our side. Perhaps it's one of our sister LCMS churches in the area who, for whatever reason, don't like the way we do church. Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's style of preaching. Maybe it's the programs that we do or we don't have. Maybe they think of it as competition. And all that we can say, if we're going to try to be faithful to, to uh, the kingdom of God, like Paul's being faithful to the kingdom of God, is great. You might think of yourself as in competition. You might rejoice in the fact that, whatever, you have one up on us. For whatever reason, I don't even want to speculate what those would be. However, if you're preaching Christ, we are going to be rooting for you. We're going to be happy with you if you're preaching Christ. That's where Paul's at. So Paul, not even those who are opposed to him, he's not even going to feel sorry for himself because other, other fellow Christians are happy that he's in jail. None of this. Paul, in fact, is not focused on himself at all. Paul is, however, focused on the gospel, and the, which is, of course, the announcement that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the Lord of the universe. 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. All these bad things, I'm going to rejoice in these things because they've served to advance the gospel. Two different practical ways that the gospels have been advanced by Paul being in prison, and the first is this. Verse 13, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is 24-7 chained up to a Roman soldier. This is, of course, at best, awkward, right? At worst, just flat-out annoying or uncomfortable, perhaps even painful, physically, psychologically. But what is Paul thinking here? How are those guys in the Imperial Guard going to meet the real Lord of the universe unless somebody, one of his followers, is chained up to them? It's the only way this is going to happen. My suffering is the necessary step for them to hear about the true kingdom of the true king. I mean, they are aware of the gospel of Caesar, this notion that political power and military power and dynamic personality is the key to getting ahead in the world. And I'm here to offer them the real gospel of the real king. That the suffering of the God of the universe is the key to getting in the head of the world. And the only way for them to learn that is to be actually physically chained up to a sufferer. A sufferer in the name of Jesus. So instead of his suffering, Paul's going to see the gospel that these people are hearing because of his suffering. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, though. Not only are unbelievers getting to see the kingdom advancing through Paul's suffering, but the brothers and sisters are getting encouraged as well. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, not all of them, see verses 15 through 18, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is kind of strange just on the face of it. It's kind of strange. How can Christians become confident in speaking the word of God with boldness by another Christian suffering? Another Christian, in Paul's case, being in prison, but suffering in general. And the answer would just be to look at the different examples of this that you know from your own life or from the life of Paul. I mean, this is a famous one, and I brought this up before, but you guys, I, th- I heard the story of uh, in my daughter, uh, Kate, or maybe it was Reeve and I were talking about this recently, the story, story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who were missionaries to the Aka Indians in South America, and uh, Jim was murdered by these uh, Indians because they were scared of him. Instead of being like, okay, I have to get out of here, his wife Elizabeth goes to that same tribe and becomes a missionary to that tribe after they killed her husband. That tribe in mass converts to Christianity because of this witness. Instead of being intimidated by the suffering that her husband went through, Elizabeth Elliot is emboldened by his faithful proclamation of the gospel in the face of death and suffering to share that same gospel. It makes her more bold. So I read this quote in Christianity Today of um, a, a Cuban Christian. So, so uh, you know, during the, the revolution of, I think it was 59, when, when Fidel Castro takes over and uh, Cuba officially becomes an atheistic state, the Church of God in Cuba does not shrink, but it grows. Now, this is this was a stat that had to do with the Methodist Church. It went from like six thousand members in the Methodist Church to fifty thousand members in the space of four or five years. Here's what one of these Christians said: While the economy around us is falling apart and poverty is just becoming endemic, Christians, he says, are living in a state of special grace. 
It's not difficult for Cubans to see the difference between the people of God and those who are desperately trying to live without faith. Those who are desperately trying to live a life based upon pleasure or power or self-satisfaction or money or in the face of economic hardship, scrabbling and hoarding anything that you can get, whether it's a loaf of bread or one American dollar. In the face of all this, Cubans can see, here's what he says, Cubans can see the difference between the people of God and those who are desperately trying to live without faith. Ordinary Cubans are becoming aware of the church as a life-saving community of hope. In desperate times, it is those who are connected to the source of all power and peace who, it will be apparent, are the ones who are winning. Right? Those who in the face of suffering can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not those who are like, i got to get out of this prison no matter what. I can't believe that I'm going through this horrible story. Where are you at, God? And I'm not saying it's wrong to say those things. Again, Job says these things. I mean, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says these things, right? But for Paul to see past these circumstances and see that through suffering, others, Christians, are becoming emboldened to share in this gospel message as well. I'll give you another quick example. I had uh, at least a handful of people, not since I've been here, but when I was at Good Shepherd, I'll say that maybe uh, three or four people said to me at different times or said to one of the pastors, I can't come to church right now because I've been diagnosed with cancer. It was usually cancer. And for whatever, you know, their appearance was changing. They were becoming more gaunt or they were losing their hair. And I just don't, I just feel so bad. And people were coming up to me and saying, like, are you doing okay? We're praying for you. And it just, it just reminds me all the time. And I just, I just can't deal with it. I'm, I'm trying to get better and I'll, I'll, hopefully I'll be back soon. And what I wanted to say to these people was, don't do that to me. Like, I need to see you suffer in grace. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want to see people suffer. But it's encouraging encouraging and emboldening to me to see somebody suffer, for, for, for health reasons in this case, and say, Christ is Lord of my body. I have full confidence that whether now or in the next life, He will raise me from the dead and give me complete health. That emboldens me. For us to run away from the community of God because of suffering is actually the intimidating thing, ironically. Paul sees that his suffering is actually causing other Christians to be bold to share in the suffering as well. Now, how, here's the question, and this is actually the crux of the sermon. I want you to remember this part. More than any other thing I've said before, I want you to remember this part. How is, it, how is Paul able to get to the point where he can say, I can be in prison and it's good because the gospel is advancing. There are different layers to this to, to, to this answer that we're going to get into in upcoming weeks. But let me give you just the surface answer that Paul gives right here. The answer is because God is completely sovereign. The answer is because God is completely sovereign. Look what he look what look what he says down in verses fifteen and sixteen. Some some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing this. Here's what they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul has been stationed there. This is not some sort of failing. Like God wanted Paul to be happy and healthy and then there was some sort of chink in the armor. Paul maybe slipped up and said the wrong thing to the wrong person and now he's in jail and God's like, oh man, now we got to sort of fix this problem too. No, Paul has been stationed in prison. Paul has been assigned the task of suffering. Because God wants the gospel to advance. Your suffering is not plan B. 
Your suffering is not some sort of like glitch in the system. Your suffering is God's sovereign desire that Christ be seen in your life. What does Christ look like? Christ is suffering and bleeding on a cross. That's how, that's how God saves the world. And God allows us, gives us the gift of suffering, puts us into the role of suffering so that His kingdom, the kingdom of the suffering Christ, can be advanced. Paul believes that God is sovereign. What does that mean that God is sovereign? Let me just give you some quick bullet points here. This is broadly theological and um, we can unpack this more later if you'd like. There are no circumstances. First thing it means is there are no circumstances that are outside of God's control. There's nothing that catches God off guard. There's nothing that's happening to you that God Himself is not ultimately behind. Number two, that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And this means that He has authority over all creation, including your suffering. You know this, right? That God, with a snap of His finger, could take away all of your suffering. And all of us at one time or other have asked, why doesn't He just do it? And the answer is, is because God puts people on the front lines where the suffering is the hottest, because that's where the battle for the kingdom is the hottest. And He wants to win authority over all things. And so He's going to use His authority over His army to station some of us at different times in the hottest part of the battle. And the third thing is this, that the events of our lives, including the events that cause suffering, are the means by which God is going to get this glory. God is going to use your suffering to bring glory to Himself. I am put here for the sake of advancing the Gospel. And because I know that God is behind this, I can completely embrace this for the sake of the unbelievers around me, for the sake of the believers who need to be emboldened for the sake of the Gospel, and for the sake of Christ, whose glory is finally and completely won when the Gospel is completely victorious. Some of you today, also all of you today, are like Paul, imprisoned by bad circumstances. And some of you, it's something maybe minor. Maybe some of you, actually a few of you, a handful of you, especially if you're younger, are in a place where you're like, actually, I'm doing really good right now. Some of you are in a real bad way. Some of you are trapped in suffering circumstances that you didn't ask for, and maybe you helped contribute to. But they're there. And there's really no way out. And some of you have asked, like, God, where are you at here? God, can you liberate, liberate me from this? God, what have I done wrong that you've stuck me here? Now, some of you are in imprisoning circumstances because of your own sin. In which case, go read the parable of the prodigal son. Repent of that sin and then come here to this place where you can see that your circumstances are under God's control. For those of you who are suffering like Paul is for the sake of Christ, all I can say is this. This is, this is hard to say. This is almost brutal. If Paul himself did not say it, I wouldn't have the guts to look you in the face and say this. But sometimes God stations His people in the hottest part of the battle. The part where they're going to get shot. Where they're going to get abandoned. Where they might even get killed. So that the Gospel can advance. What we need to do this morning is to ask God to open up our eyes so that we can see that this is what's happening in our suffering. That we can embrace this gospel reality. That united to the suffering Jesus Christ, in your suffering, whatever it is, the kingdom of God is advancing. Amen.